What's up, advocates? And welcome to the first episode of the commercial claims. What am I saying? Of the claims game podcast. I'm so used to saying commercial claim show. That's the claims game podcast. And welcome to episode number one. Super excited about this. Today's date is, I don't know, it's a Wednesday. And um, we're finally getting things kicked off. If you follow all of our stuff, I hope that you know that we officially have our website. Our website is up and it is live. It is www.commercialclaimsadvocate.com. And it's where you could find everything that you need, all of it. You could find all of our videos, our blog posts. You could find this podcast that you're about to listen to, and you could find all kinds of information. And get ready, people. We get ready. We've got some books. We've got some courses. We've got all kinds of stuff coming your way, and I think uh, you're going to enjoy it. And today, we have a very special guest. Of course, it's the first episode of the podcast. So we had to make sure that we got a very special guest. And that is someone that I've known for a very long time, uh, probably about 10 years already, uh, when I had already been sick and tired of using that or or referring different insurance attorneys because my claim would get lost and it would just get lost in the shuffle and three years later the claim would finally get paid or I'd call the office of whatever attorney my claim was with and I didn't I couldn't get a hold of anybody and nobody knew what was going on. I finally got up in my networking chapter and I said, I need an attorney I could work with. I was referred to Mr. David Farber of the Farber Law Firm, and he is who I'm interviewing today. I sat with him and I told him right off the bat, and I said, listen, I'm just looking for somebody that I can count on. I'm looking for somebody that when I give them my claim or when they take over my claim, that it's not going to get lost in the shuffle. And it's going to get, I'm going to be able to get answers answered, questions answered, and just get things moving. And he said that he would be that guy. And it's grown into a pretty nice, solid, positive relationship. And uh, that's why I'm very happy to have him on the first episode. He's one of the smartest people that I know. And um, I thought it would be great, especially now with this COVID. I mean, we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about what PAs, what public adjusters must do throughout the claim to make sure that not only do they get paid faster, but if it does go to litigation, that it gets that it, it's all wrapped up in a bow for the attorney to really knock it out of the park. We talk about what a CRN is, a civil remedy notice. I know I've gotten a lot of questions about that. We talked about the rules behind proof of loss and the POL and how many days we have to submit it and how soon we should submit it and when we should submit it and so on and so forth. Uh, we talk about uh, about some new law that are, are going on because of COVID. We do go over the the famous, um, the famous conversation now, which is the loss of business income to uh, commercial businesses now that the COVID-19 is hitting and if we should file claims and where we're at with the status of that. So that's an interesting conversation. We talk about water damage exclusions and water damage limits. So we've got a lot of stuff that we talk about throughout the entire podcast that I think you guys are going to get a lot out of. On top of that, in my opinion, it's a good conversation. We have a good time. I think you'll enjoy it. So please, I want to welcome David Farber of The Farber Law Firm. You could find him at www.thefarberlawfirm.com. You could also reach him by email at info at thefarberlawfirm.com. And you could call him directly at his office. It's 305-774-0134. One thing I could say about David is that if you call him, you're going to speak with him. You're not going to just speak with some other people. And he will be there for you to answer any of your questions. So I hope that you could enjoy this podcast that we have today, and it's with David Farber, and enjoy the first episode of the Claims Game Podcast. Welcome to the Claims Game Podcast with Vince Perry. 
Get all the tips you need from insurance claim advocates and professionals and grow your public adjusting career to the next level. And now the commercial claims advocate, Vince Perry. So I've already done the introduction is what you don't know. And we're talking to David Farber, insurance attorney, badass, insurance attorney, mogul, king of the king of the insurance claim industry. David, thank you for coming on with me for the first episode. I'm interviewing you because I wanted to make sure that I interviewed somebody that I felt comfortable with that. I mean, you bring the whole package because not only do I feel comfortable with you, but you are an extremely experienced attorney. You've been doing this for a long time, which I'm sure you will get into. And, uh, and um, I feel that we could have a nice, cool, comfortable conversation about the insurance claim game and all the crap that we're dealing with now with Corona and so on and so forth. So tell us a little bit about yourself, my friend. Well, first of all, thank you, Vince, for having me. I appreciate it. Um, very impressed by uh, the uh, audience that you've uh, garnered in such a short amount of time, you know, it speaks volumes for your commitment to the profession um, and uh, a testament to your skill and knowledge. Um, and I'm also honored, of course, to be your first guest. Um, you know, everyone's got to have a first, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, so, so a little bit about me. Um, my name is David Farber. I've been practicing a little over uh, 20 years. Uh, the first part of my practice. I was running the first party property uh, division of one of the largest insurance defense firms in Florida. Uh, some call it the evil access. Other people call it Colescott Gassane. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a good um, place to learn, get a lot of knowledge and skill. There's a lot of good lawyers there. Um, and um, uh, they are uh, fighting a lot of these claims that you guys are filing um, and um, defending those actions and litigation. After I worked with um, uh, Cole Scott and Hussein for a period of time, I then joined a preeminent plaintiff's law firm by the name of Kelly Ustall, which is up in Broward, um, that does catastrophic uh, personal injury and uh, large insurance claims. And then I had the good fortune of going out on my own a little over 11 or so years ago and and um, have been um, honored to be able to take the type of clients uh, and cases that I want um, to work on so as to bring justice and to otherwise um, help uh, speak up for little guy. That's right around the time we met. Yeah. I mean, Interestingly enough. Yeah, it's been a long time, Vince. I remember it was, um, it was about, what, 10 years ago? And I remember B&I, Woody Lippincott, said, Hey, I was like, I was like, I remember because I'm sure a lot of other public adjusters can attest who've been doing this for a while. It's hard to find good attorneys to work with. I mean, it just is what it is. Uh, a lot of attorneys, a lot of what happens very well known in this industry is you uh, send a file to an attorney, attorney takes one of the files and it just gets lost. It just gets lost forever. And it's just, it, I just remember being so annoyed. I had been doing this for probably just, just about two years or so. It wasn't that long. And I just remember getting up in the BNI meeting and just saying, I need an attorney that I can trust. I need an attorney that I could, you know, work with. And uh, I don't want my files to be submitted and they just get lost because it's just, it happens so often. And I get, I get a lot of messages all the time here on even social media and stuff. They're just like, you know, how do you find a good attorney? How do you find a good attorney? Because I mean, it is what it is. It's part of the process. I know it does take years, um, but 
I think what separates you, at least for me, is you know, if I need, uh, if I have a question about a policy, if I have a question and I'm in front of a, and I'm in, and, and I'm in a claim and I'm not really sure, you know, what's going on or what the policy really says or is there a limit here or is there not, you know, I think it's very important uh, for all attorneys to to be accessible because man, accessibility is is number one, you know. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that. I, I actually believe those were probably the first words you s- stated to me when we first met, which I is remember. something along the lines of, hey, man, if you can't be responsive and you're not going to do the job that I otherwise need you to do, you're not the right guy for me in <laughs> so many words. And uh, although I'm sure it was a lot nicer back then. Um, but no, I mean, it's it's imperative that you are working hand in hand with somebody that you know and that you trust. Um, you're not serving your client the best that you possibly can. And every attorney um, that you work with uh, on some level should be able to answer whatever question that you may have um, about a policy, about an issue, even if they don't take the case. Um, It's imperative uh, for you to be able to get the best result for your client. Um, And it's more importantly um, uh, necessary for an attorney should that case come to him or her and they need to know what happened previously so as to be able to assess the validity, validity of it going forward. Um, we, in order for us to be able to understand a claim um, and present the claim, it needs to be handled correctly from the outset. And that's why when it's being handled by a public adjuster who knows what they're doing and can present the best possible claim, um, it makes our job so much easier. So if people are looking for an attorney to work with, um, make sure it's somebody who's willing to take the time um, to be invested both in the public adjuster um, and the practice of law and ultimately the betterment of um, the insurance world and have the client's best interests at, at heart. Um, we need to, on some level, band together uh, to make sure that the insurance companies aren't taking advantage of us, uh, either be a public adjuster, a client, or an attorney. And the best way that we can do that is to make sure that when we're putting forth um, a case, that it's the strongest case possible. And the only way to do that is to have great relations. Yeah. And, you know, I know one thing first, let me get to one thing first is I know I've told you this before, but honestly, part of my goal throughout the claims process is, and I've told you this, like I said, but is to stay away from litigation because it's unfortunate, but the process of litigation, it takes time. And the longer it takes for, for my client to get paid, the longer it takes for me to get paid. Right. So it's something that I've always tried to, I I try to avoid it. But one thing that I will say that uh, you have helped me with tremendously is really just that what you're talking about, which is just making sure that all your ducks are, are in a row throughout the claims process. Are you following up with the insurance company at least on a weekly or biweekly basis? Because here in Florida, we've got that 14-day thing where if they don't respond within 14 days, you know, it doesn't look so good with the insurance company. I don't know the actual legal terms for it. I'm sure you know that, but um, it's good to stay on their case you know, follow up often. And then in the case that it is severely underpaid or it is denied, when you get the case, I mean, you've got the whole thing pretty much like on a silver platter, right? It's sort of, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not necessarily a, a, a slam dunk or anything, but it's going to help your case tremendously. Well, sure. It, it certainly does. I mean, but there's a lot to be said for um, the strength of the case based upon what a public adjuster does or doesn't do right. um, before it comes to me. And the goal would be, if possible, that all cases get resolved without the need for you or for me. I mean, it's nice that we're in a business to um, make money and help people. But at the same time, if insurance companies were doing what they were supposed to do, uh, they wouldn't need us. But we've taken cases 
you know, where they said they fell below the deductible and turned them into millions of dollars in some cases. And it's not because the insurance company made a mistake. It's because the insurance company has a bottom line. Um, and ultimately, any dollar that they pay you is one less dollar that they have in their bank to potentially earn interest on. Um, it's an unfortunate um, fact of life. And they're in the business of making money as well. Now, I'm not saying all insurance companies are bad. Um, there are certainly insurance companies that are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing. But um, it's obviously been my experience that when a client is represented by a public adjuster or an attorney or both, um, that they're going to get the absolute best result and maximize the value of their claim so that they can put their home or commercial property back um, together. And, you know, believe it or not, I do actually also think that I think that they do have sometimes the client's with the insurer's best interest at heart. I just think that it's it's gotten to a point now, especially I, I, I'd say since around 92, since Andrew and stuff, where it's just, it's they've almost created their own like monster of all these just underpaid claims and they just fight everything tooth and nail, which is another thing that never really made sense to me is I, I'll tell these adjusters sometimes where I've got just solid case, you know, it is what it is, easy claim, and they're giving me a hard time about it. And I'm like, are you really going to give me a hard time about it when you could just pay this claim now? And save more money than you would if we if you're gonna fight me on it now, instead of paying me, let's say ten thousand bucks now, you're gonna have to pay fifty or a hundred if we take it to litigation. So, like, why I never understood that, but I think it's just they sort of created somewhat of a monster, especially since Andrew. Well, they they did it to themselves on some level because back in Andrew days, um, when when Andrew decimated um, South Florida, the adjusters would come out and they'd actually have a checkbook. And they would literally right. write the right. check right then and there. And they'd say, yep. listen, if you need more, just yep. give me a call and we'll give you more. And that's how it how it was. And as time went on um, and uh, people started filing, I guess, more cases or insurance companies started looking at the bottom line a lot more and potentially putting their profits over people. Um, now it was a question of, did you start that fire? Did you cause that right. hurricane? Um, you know, did you cause that hurricane? Yeah. How, how do you know that that tornado wasn't just, you know, some <laughs> science project that you were running in your garage? I mean, it, it's it's gotten to the point of asinine when if they really had more customer support and more trust um, in the adjuster that, who's coming out and evaluating the claim, many of these claims might not get to where they are. Um, but unfortunately, the more norm is to delay, deny and defend um, their position so as to um, potentially save the money. But in some respects, it doesn't really save them much because in the end, like you said, um, they're going to end up paying um, both the client more money um, and potentially pay additional attorney's fees and costs. And they're also going to have to pay their own attorney. So what they could have gotten out for substantially less, now they're paying potentially double, triple, or even quadruple what they could have gotten out far, uh, far earlier. Tell me about that real quick uh, for the new public adjusters, attorney fees and costs. You know, I think that's a question that I get from clients all the time. Oh my goodness, we're going to sign up with an attorney, but how much is it going to cost me? How much do I have to pay the attorney? So on and so forth. And you know, what's a, I guess if you could explain that a little bit and also I could also give some tips on how to sort of explain it to the client too, though. Sure. There, there's a lot of misinformation out there about attorney's fees and costs um, and what an attorney will do or won't do um, in terms of charging the client. Um, in Florida, and this is not true in all states, we have a um, statute which allows for us to potentially get additional attorney's fees and costs on top of the indemnity payment. 
um, we're only entitled to obtain additional attorney's fees and costs once the case is in litigation and either the insurance company confesses liability or we ultimately get a judgment which results in a um, successful result for our client. And then we have a attorney fee hearing, which allows for the court to potentially award attorney's fees. Oh, now the insurance okay. companies know uh, that every claim um, that gets filed in the state of Florida is going to have um, an element of attorney's fees and costs. So it's my goal, and I presume most other attorneys' goal, to try and get the additional attorney's fees and costs paid for by the insurance company directly. So in a scenario where a public adjuster is also representing an insured, um, as well as an attorney, the goal would be is for the indemnity payment to be what it would be as though the public adjuster was able to hit the ball out of the park um, and for the public adjuster to get his percentage um, based upon that um, amount and for the attorney to be able to get the additional attorney's fees and costs on top of that claim settlement amount. Um, that is the ideal um, structure that exists out there. And of course, if you have a fair, reasonable and honorable attorney who's who's taking um, their client's interests um, ahead of their own, the goal would make sure that when they talk to their client, they set up reasonable expectations as to what it is that they may be able to recover and ultimately have a frank conversation as to um, what they will be receiving as their net amount, meaning after the public adjuster is paid, after water mitigation may be paid, after an attorney may be paid, so that you have a happy client when the case is over. Um, because the worst thing that you potentially have starting out as a new pu public adjuster um, or at any point in time in your career is having somebody who is um, disappointed in the work that you're providing, the service that you're providing, um, or the result that you uh, secured for them. So I always find it important to empower my clients to make sure that they know what the net amount is that they're going to receive before their hand goes on the dotted line to sign a release. Okay, let me simplify this a little bit. Is it okay for me to tell a client that the attorney fees and costs are separate from the settlement that they're going to be getting? Am I okay to say something like that or? Well, no. it's, it, it, what you advise a client, it would potentially be problematic from the standpoint of- Right, can't act as a lawyer. Between, yeah, the relationship between an attorney and, and his client is between the attorney and his client. So, you know, what you decide to say to your client, you also- Before. But before even, going to litigation. But but even before going to litigation, you as a public adjuster should always be um, maintaining that sort of um, air of, I do public adjusting. Um, and if we have to go to the next stage, that being an attorney, um, the attorney will explain to you how the attorney's fees work. Now, you can, of course, say in any sense, which isn't giving legal advice, that you should know that there is a, an attorney's fee statute. And exactly as I just explained it, which is um, the attorney is going to do his best to make sure that he gets his fees and costs paid on top of any settlement that you ultimately receive. There you so go, you if you want to say it how, how you want to say it, how you want to say it, you say it however you want. I'm just telling you is that that I would I would remind you and, and any public adjuster watching this, don't ever give legal advice. Don't right. ever try and interpret a, a, a lawyer's contract. Don't ever pre, uh, presume that you know what the lawyer is going to do or not going to do because you don't want to get yourself into a situation where at the end of the day, if a lawyer and a, and a client has some sort of disagreement or problem, 
then they come back to you and they say, hey, you know, Vince, you uh, you told me this, that or the other thing. You don't want to get involved in that. You know? Listen, I know, I know we're not allowed to act as lawyers and we're not allowed to give attorney advice, but I'd be lying if I told you that I wasn't compared to an attorney in the past. I, I, I don't doubt it. They're like, wait, so you're like a lawyer and I have to be, no, no, I'm not a lawyer because I actually tried to take that LSAT once and I failed miserably. And I told myself, hell no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> not for me. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> no, people don't realize though, what we actually do once we get a file and how many moving parts they're really it are to be able to bring someone a successful result. You know, it's, it's, it can be mind boggling. And sometimes just the smallest of issue um, can be the biggest problem in the world, or alternatively, what you think is the biggest problem in the world really turns out to be something very minor. And well, you really don't know. What are some of the reasons why it takes so damn long? Well, I mean, there's a couple reasons in the sense that, um, you know, the, 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 Florida has this 90-day prompt payment um, statute. And the insurance companies and some plaintiff's lawyers and certainly the defense bar are of the opinion that with that 90-day um, prompt payment, if you can call 90 days prompt, I, I don't, Seriously. but <laughs> some people might, um, that they have that much time to necessarily investigate a claim and make a coverage decision. But actually what that statute says is that they actually have to um, pay or deny. So they don't just get to tell you on the 90th day where um, accepting coverage, they actually have to pay or deny. And if they don't accept coverage within those 90 days and pay or deny, um, obviously, if they pay, it might resolve their um, penalty. Uh, and if they deny, um, it might also lead to the penalty of interest. So is this, either scenario, is this just Florida, David, or is this nationwide, this 90 day thing? Well, every state has their own specific laws and rules, and some are, are better and some are worse. Um, there are bad faith provisions that exist within insurance um, statutes. Um, in our um, Florida, it's, uh, I believe, 624.155, which talks about the bad faith. Wow. That's yeah. Hold on, I got to um, write this down. 624. Well, now I'm going to have to double check, but I'm pretty sure. But what we, but what we do. Is, oh, and I will say quickly that David Farber is also licensed in the state of Texas. And soon to be New York, actually. How about that? All right. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. 624 um, what? And in, and in Texas, it's called the Stowers decision, mm. um, which talks about bad faith. And in um, Florida, it's, it's statutory and it's 624.155. Um, and that is where you have to file a civil remedy notice of insurer violation to advise the insurance company that whatever practice um, it's presently employing is potentially bad faith based upon its invest uh, investigation, based upon its claims handling, based upon its analysis. I mean, there's there's a whole host of reasons based upon its delay. There's no. a whole host of reasons. The famous CRN, Civil Remedy Notice, Explain exactly what is it? That's just like a letter that is sent. That's not because that's not that's not a lawsuit, correct? Yeah. That's just like a warning, right? Well, it's it's more than that because it's very serious in the sense that it is a um, it is a, a filing that gets filed with the Department of Financial Services. So it's kind of a ding against the insurance company. Now I don't know what internally the Department of Financial Services does with the document or not once it receives it. However, it is online for anybody to want to go and review it. So if you wanted to, you could create an account uh. um, and you could go see 
what is safe point or what is citizens or what are other lawyers saying about um, some of their practices? You can search for my name. You can see, you can see all the filed CRNs and stuff. Yeah. And you can see their responses. And it's, it's quite interesting. Huh. Um, Where is that? Um, I can give you the actual URL uh, when okay. the podcast is over and you can post it when you uh, put your links in. Interesting. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's, it, the idea is, is that public adjusters, although the, the verdict is sort of out on this as to whether or not they can, as a public adjuster, file a civil remedy notice, um, on behalf of a client, but certainly an attorney can, and it can pre, um, date the lawsuit, meaning that a civil remedy notice is a prerequisite to be able to bring what they call a bad faith lawsuit at some point in time when you prove that there's coverage, liability, as well as damages. Once that gets established, you can potentially have a secondary case where you say that because the insurance company didn't do what it was supposed to do in either a reasonable amount of time or it had certain bottom line um, um, considerations as opposed to client considerations um, or, or many, many other facets, you can actually sue um, the insurance company for what would otherwise be considered punitive damages to really maximize um, the entitlement of an insured for the insurance company's bad faith. And what how it's supposed to work is once the civil remedy notice is filed, we get a copy of it and we're, it's, we're required to send it to the insurance company. And then the insurance company has 60 days and the law says to cure the violation, which is always interesting because what are they going to do? And usually within the 60 day time frame, um, it says um, that, you know, depending on what the attorney wants, mine is usually um, review uh, the entire um, estimate that's provided by the public adjuster or a general contractor um, and um, otherwise pay minus prior payments and deductible all the amounts owed, as well as agree to additional attorney's fees and costs. So now the insurance company is on a um, time clock in the sense that if they don't cure that violation within 60 days, they could potentially be hit with a bad faith lawsuit after the initial lawsuit, which could subject them to punitive damages. And that is a very big claim that could be hit against an insurance company far more than an indemnity payment would otherwise be paid for under the insurance policy. It's called extra contractual damages. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. And how do they usually respond to some of these CRNs? Do they just, I'm sure they try to, res they have to respond. So I'm sure they respond with some lowball offer or something like that. Is that more often the case? No. And that's another thing that I find to be curious. Um, but really what ends up happening is, is that they will write a very detailed response, which is some lawyer generally analyzing the case from the beginning to end, stating why they didn't otherwise commit bad faith and why they fully and fairly and reasonably investigated the claim and how they didn't violate Florida statute or the bad faith statute or, or anything else. They and, stick and to their they, guns and they should be put on a pedestal because they're the greatest insurance company in the world. Right. However, that, that letter in and of itself doesn't cure the violation. So I'm still authorized once the case, at least the initial case is resolved from being able to sue them for bad faith for their conduct because they did not cure um, the bad faith conduct that they engaged in prior to the 60 days. The letter is what they call, um, uh, well, let me explain it this way. If they don't write a letter, it's 
presumed that they've committed bad faith. If they do write a, a letter um, a response, then it's considered um, a rebuttable presumption that they didn't commit bad faith, meaning they have the ability to refute the fact that there was no bad faith. But when I used to be a defense lawyer and I used to represent the insurance companies, I can tell you um, there's a few um, defendants you never want to be representing in court. And one is a nursing home who I used to also represent because nobody wants to say to a family, right. you know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry um, that your loved one died or got a decubitus ulcer. And um, there was, you know, we really could. <laughs> what I was saying, and I don't know where I got cut off, is, is more or less the, the if we're still we're still live, right? Live and live. Live and live, live and fly. Um, is that the, the civil remedy notice, as I was saying before, the jury is still out as to whether a public adjuster can file one or or not. I didn't However, even know the jury was out about that. Well, that's pretty cool. They, they've been out a very long time because no one, <laughs> no one has ever answered that question conclusively. Um, some consider it the unauthorized practice of law, and others say that it's not. Um, but if you have a relationship with an attorney, um, and he could potentially file that on behalf of an insured, if the insured authorizes him to do so, and that might provide additional. Um, assistance to you potentially in getting a case resolved, especially if you think that the actions or inactions of the insurance company are really outrageous and um, really uh, amount to purposeful denial, delay, and improper defenses. Um, all right. So I guess let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. How can, why is it important to accept a good no, that's not the question. You know, why is it important for a public adjuster to do their freaking job, right? Before before you getting before you getting that claim. Like, what are some of the things that a public adjuster should do throughout the life of a claim? Obviously, to get the claim paid and, and and do the best service possible. But in the case that a claim does get denied, underpaid, delayed, whatever it is, and we need to take this thing to litigation, what are some of the things that a public adjuster should do throughout the claim, throughout the life of the claim, to to really set it up nicely? Well, like I told you a long time ago, and I continue to tell you, yes, sir. Um, and, and I will tell any public adjuster, is that on some level, you should have righteous indignation for the concept of... What is that? Th that's the concept of being <laughs> really pissed off. Because an insurance company doesn't get to have the ability to take your money and say they're going to provide you with a service, give you a piece of the rock, an umbrella... Um, being in good hands, whatever the case may be, and then at the same time decide that it can sit there and allow an insured to sit in their home um, or commercial property staring day in and day out at unrepaired covered damages and giving an insurance company 90 days to make a determination. If a pipe is broken, what on earth do you need 90 days to be able to uh, investigate when all you need to do is either look at the insured's plumbing um evaluation or look at the or have your own plumber come out and how long is that possibly going to take and how long even after the plumber makes his evaluation from the insurance company um relative to the cast iron drain lines is does it take for an insurance company to analyze that single page report it's broken it's not broken we can agree we can disagree whatever the case may be why does it take 90 days so when i you know like I, this indication I, my viewpoint is is that a public adjuster should have the same sort of viewpoint, which is it's not right, it's not fair, and we're not going to take it. And, and the reason we're not going to take it is because we have an obligation to represent our client. And the best way that we can represent our client is by getting in the insurance company's face and saying to them, what are you doing 
to take care of your policyholder. They pay you money and they're suffering because of your conduct. And so I say, um, and I tell you, and I tell every public adjuster is write those emails and get it in the insurance company's face, which is, listen, the loss happened on this day, uh, it was reported on that day. Um, we provided you with our estimate on this day and sworn proof of loss. And um, we want you to come out and inspect the loss. How come you haven't done so? Um, is there anything else that you need? Is there anything else that you want? Here's, 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 you know, everything on a silver platter for you. We'll give you another five days. We'll give you another 10 days. If you want to have a plumbing inspection, send your plumber out. What are you doing, Mr. or Mrs. Insurance Company Adjuster, to make sure that my client's um, claim is properly evaluated and paid? Because I'm just sitting here waiting for you to do the right thing. And so is my client. And we're getting tired of sitting here and waiting. Which is why this whole 90 days is is sort of a farce. It's ridiculous. It really isn't 90 days. It's just a penalty statute, meaning that if they don't do what they're supposed to do within 90 days, they are supposed to pay interest on the value of the claim that they improperly denied or underpaid. That's all it necessarily means. And so when you ask the question about um, why do I want things to be done in a certain way so that they are presented on a silver platter so that... Um, it, 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 it helps me and it helps you and it helps the client. Obviously, what we just talked about is that it's clearly documenting your file, which is important. Right. It's clearly getting in the insurance company's face and making sure that the insurance company knows that you're serious and that you should be taken um, seriously and that um, you're not somebody to be messed around with because they messed around with you in the past. And they know that if you don't do insurance company the right thing in the right amount of time, they're going to get a phone call. For Mr. Lawyer or a lawsuit in a very short amount of time, and then they're going to be paying those double, triple, quadruple damages that they could have otherwise resolved the case um, for uh, far less um, if they didn't act in such a negligent um, and inappropriate manner. Um, so to, to do that sort of thing and, and to be able to get attorney's fees and costs, which is the reason why not only is it serving the benefit of helping the case go forward and making sure that you're properly doing your job. But when we get to court, one of the things that the court wants to know, if we ever get to a fee hearing, is what efforts did the insured uh, or his public adjuster take in order to get this case resolved? And um, or did you just file a lawsuit because, you know, you wanted to try and get additional attorney's fees and costs? And if I can go and show a court, hey, judge, look, on uh, February 2nd, here's a letter from the public adjuster asking for a coverage determination and a um, undisputed payment. Here's another request on February 10th. Here's another request on February 27th. Um, whatever the case may be, I'm mother. And it's agent, public adjuster is trying to do what they can do to try and get the case moving and along. And because there's no response, including those 14 days that they're supposed to respond to communications from you. They weren't doing their job. So it wasn't a concept of us just running to the courthouse to file a lawsuit. It was a concept of you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And that's why we're here. You know, I was laughing because uh, I get that question a lot. How long, you know, Vince, how long do these insurance companies have to, to respond? You know, they're not responding this and that. And I tell them, I said, the claim should be paid immediately. I always tell people, I always tell the adjusters that they need four things. At least in the beginning, you want to have four things. If you could provide them with your LOR, your estimate, your uh, uh, expert documentation, if it's a plumbing repair, roofing repair, whatever it is, and any kind of mitigation documentation, whether it's a dry out or a tarp or whatever it is, you can provide those four things right off the bat. That's it. They're on, they're on notice. 
We've got we've provided you everything that you need. Uh, we've taken the recorded statement. We've done the initial inspection already. You know what the hell else do you need to solve this? Uh, to 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 make a coverage decision and make a payment on this claim. Is there anything else that you need? If not, we'll make a payment by the end of the week. And, you know, if, if they don't respond within a week, that's it. The next email is going to go out. And unless you send a plumber out, unless you're sending somebody out, we don't want to waste any more time because, like you said, you know, we've got a client here who's staring at the damaged cabinets, the, the, the hole in the roof and in their ceiling. And they got to look at this crap every day. And the insurance adjuster who's sitting in a desk, it was not his fault because, you know, he's not living in the house. So he's not going through what that person is going through. But it's up to us to remind them <laughs> that these people are going through what they're going through because, I mean, you know, it sucks to live in this house and having to, to live through that. So I like to make sure that I remind them every single email that, by the way, every day that you're taking to make a payment or make a coverage decision on this claim, the client is living like this, 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 and that. Please see attached photos of what exactly that they're living with so that maybe you can make a payment and let these people move on with their lives. The student has become the master. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> you taught me well, my friend. You taught me well. So what was I going to say? So, I mean, is there any other specific things besides follow-up? Uh, POL, this is a big question that I always have. Should we provide the POL at the beginning of the claim? Should we wait until it goes to litigation? Should we wait until they request it? I know the POL is something to me that has never made any sense. How the fact that a single document, a single freaking piece of paper could weigh so heavy in the litigation process. If you don't provide it, it doesn't make any sense to me, but that's whatever. Maybe that's another conversation for another day. Explain to me, when should we provide the POL? How soon we should we provide it? And the consequences of not providing it. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a lot of questions in one. I'll, I'll do my best to try and answer them. Keep uh, it short, David. I know how you could talk. I know, I know. <laughs> I say a whole lot of nothing too. <laughs> um, in any event, yeah. So, so, so sworn proofs of loss have been around for as long as insurance policies have been around. And the reason I believe, uh, that the insurance companies include them in the policies is simply because they want the insured to have a sworn account of what the value of their damages are. And as it's considered a post loss compliance issue, it needs to be complied with. And for all of the new public adjusters, be very, very careful as it relates to uh, State Farm in particular, because State Farm has a provision, which is crazy in my opinion, that you actually have to provide the sworn proof of loss within 60 days of the date of loss. Meaning right. that if you had the loss on one particular day, but you didn't report it for say five, 10, 15 days later, or whatever the case may be, the time was already ticking, okay? Once you report it, you think State Farm or somebody is going to necessarily give you a sworn proof of loss and say, hey, you have this policy provision that um, you need to comply with and you need to have an accounting of your damages within 60 days. And, and Jesus, David, <laughs> it's this wireless connection. David, you're gone. All right, you're back. Okay. It, oftentimes, the public adjuster, the person's not represented by a public adjuster from the outset. And they don't even they know don't what know. a proof of loss is. Um, right. And they don't know what it, what they're supposed to do or not do. Um, so be mindful of any state farm cases that you need to get that sworn proof of loss within 60 days. There are other carriers that have that same requirement. I think Castle Key may be one of them um, and others. So you want to get a copy of that insurance policy because you as a public adjuster don't want to be sitting there with a requirement to produce a sworn proof of loss within 60 days of the date of loss. And you're holding on would say, 
I can't help that the office is calling him. It's declining. declining. Oh, that's what it is. Uh, yeah, if, our technical, yeah. if our technical difficulties didn't occur, we'd be on my laptop as opposed to my cell phone and <laughs> we'd be much better off. But here we All are. Good. <laughs> and so, so um, with that swarm proof of loss, um, you ask how early should you provide it? I think if you're providing your estimate, you should be getting the swarm proof of loss in at the same time. There is no harm in you doing that because you're complying with the policy, whether it's requested or not. Most insurance policies say that um, you are to give us a sworn proof of loss within 60 days of our request. Right. So it isn't necessarily a post-loss compliance duty, meaning you have to give a sworn proof of loss, but um, rather um, a request once made has to be complied with. Um, then it becomes a post-loss compliance issue. And there is very draconian law in my mind, which does stand for the proposition that if you do not give swarm proofs of loss after they're requested in a particular amount of time, courts can and sometimes do um, bar coverage on that basis. Ugh, alone, which I think is a very um, improper and, and, and um, um, there's a lot of words I could use. To it sucks. It, I'd rather, it know, sucks. But it's, it's just it's just wrong because, like yeah. I said, it's a piece of paper. And that piece of paper um, didn't change the value of your estimate, which is why I'm saying to you, put the estimate amount, help the insured fill out a sworn proof of loss, get that in as quickly as possible. And it has a dual purpose on top of the concept and the fact that in, whether or not it's requested or not. The insurance company, again, has additional obligations under the um, statutes to either pay or admit um, coverage for a claim within 30 days of a sworn proof of loss. Right. So that you've got a 90 day profit payment statute, and then you've got a 30 day sworn proof of loss statute. And so anything that continues to mark off boxes that the insurance company didn't do what it was supposed to do, which is, I gave you the sworn proof of loss. Some public adjusters will do this, and the insurance companies will write you some ridiculous letter like, uh, we never asked you for this, and uh, we're, not accept <laughs> we're not accepting or rejecting your sworn proof of That's loss. That's my favorite. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't ask you for it. And you're like, well, you, you didn't need to ask me for it. Yeah, you could ask me for it, but I just chose to, gave, to give it to you now anyways. So you choose to do with whatever you want to choose to do with it. However, the statute didn't change. You still got to do something within 30 days. You're going to do it or you're not going to do it. Right, right. Yeah, I'd be lying if I told you it hasn't happened to me. It, that, I'd be lying if I told you it hasn't happened to me. And I, it was a case killer. It didn't go well. Wasn't one of mine. Wasn't one of yours. No, it was not. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go well. And I just got so upset. And to this day, to me, it doesn't make any sense. But it is what it is, right? That's just what it says. Well, I, I mean, I think that courts are working hard to to make sure that that insureds don't have that sort of result anymore and giving the benefit of the doubt and the ability to potentially cure that defect if it occurs in litigation. However, you don't want to be on the receiving end of this as a new public adjuster. You don't want to be ever facing a question from somebody saying, why didn't you submit a sworn proof of loss? What prevented you from doing so? Um, was it just that you couldn't get someone to notarize a piece of paper for you? You've already done the hard work. You've scoped the loss. You've created your Xactimate or SimSol um, estimate. The you POL is the easiest part. You've got everything done. What, what yeah. is your harm in not submitting it You know, and, and getting that clock ticking? It's five minutes to put that thing together. I don't know.
I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't often find myself involved in preparing swarm proofs of loss, but you know, they don't take a whole lot of time and they can only really help you. And the truth of the matter is, is that people sometimes are of the opinion, well, um, if I do this, am I going to be able to change my damage value? Well, yeah. I mean, yes, it's the sworn account from the insured. And that was going to be my next not, question. You know, they don't have the knowledge background or training to be able to put the numbers in there anyways. So they testify, you know, for the most part that, um, that this is a number that's ultimately put into um, um, the sworn proof loss by the public adjuster and that they're relying upon that um, number because the public adjuster is the expert with the license to be able to come up with that number. Now, if for some reason the public adjuster believes uh, and does further evaluation or investigation of the loss and determines that the, the thing should be more, there's no harm in revising a sworn proof of loss and saying that my damage evaluation has increased for whatever reason. That's good to know. If they get a general contractor involved and um, they ultimately have a new um, damage estimate that, you know, is in excess of the public adjusters, you can change the um, sworn proof of loss. Where it That's becomes good to a little know. more dicey though, is a situation where the public adjuster has prepared a sworn proof of loss and now you want to take things out of it. Because you've already had the client swear, essentially as though they were under oath, that these are truly their damages. And when taking things out of the estimate, um, the question would be is why were they, they in the estimate to begin with? And of course, then it would- We don't got to worry about that. I made a mistake. We don't but, have to worry about that. So you'd be careful. But know? I think it's good. That's good to say that it could be more because I think a lot of times, a lot of public adjusters and even the clients, since they have to go and get it notarized, you know, when something has to get notarized, all of a sudden it's like the real deal. I think it's good to know to all public adjusters that it could be, it could end up being more. That's not the necessarily the end all be all that, you know, don't worry about it. Let's just get this thing, especially since the, the, the paper carries so much weight, uh, you know, people freak out about it. Well, I, I have, a, I have even a, a new, um, 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 Let's see where I, a, a new development in the law, which happened as a result of uh, the new online technology, which exists today, um, that in January of 2020 this year, the um, courts are now authorizing remote online notarizations. I heard about that. So you as a public adjuster um, can tell the client, although there would be a fee associated with it. You may want to incur it as the public adjuster, or you may have your client incur it, and you give them the notary's contact information, and you leave that um, sworn proof, and they go through the online notarization, and they never even have to leave their house. Um, they don't have to go to a bank. They don't have to delay. They literally could get it notarized right then and there um, by an online notary. Yeah, they're doing that with real estate a lot right now. A lot of the real estate transactions that they're doing, they're doing uh, online notaries. Yeah, well, it's it's helping in my practice as well because when we're um, dealing with answers to interrogatories, you know, some of my clients are elderly and some of them are working full time and don't have the ability to come into my office, which of course they're welcome to do. Um, some of them don't have notaries in their office, and you know, it's just a matter of convenience at this point. You know, what can we do to make people's lives easier and better? And I think that the courts have now. Um, caught up with the trend of the ability to do things remotely. Like now, today with the coronavirus, um, the courts have essentially closed. Jury trials are probably done for the rest of the year. And um, hearings are still going forward in some 
courts, uh, but they're doing it through technology like this uh, with the Zoom and um, um, telephonic uh, meetings. Did you see that I, that article I posted about the judge being pissed off that lawyers were showing up to their hearings in, in pajamas and in their bed and they put the little back, the Zoom background so that you couldn't tell that they were like in their bedroom? I, I had a hearing this morning where the judge complimented me on uh, my dress. Uh, I dressed in a suit this morning. Um, yeah, but just from the waist up, right? Come on. Exactly. Yeah, My opposing counsel was also wearing gym shorts, as he told me. I, he didn't show me, so he just told me. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's the new day and age that we're in right now. Well, let's get into the corona then. Let's talk about that. A COVID beer or something else. No. I'm oh, sure. yeah, that'd be cool, actually. I don't, I don't, I don't have any beer somewhere, next to me. Right? Exactly. Uh, I guess... Uh, what was I going to say? Loss of business income. This seems to be a very hot topic. Uh, to me, my opinion is it doesn't seem like we've really gotten many answers into how this is going to turn out. I think that there's a lot of public adjusters that I see on social media that are, 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 are signing up these claims left and right with people who've got the loss of business income coverage. And I guess sort of hoping for the best. I, I don't know. Yeah. What have you seen? Um, that's pretty much what's happening. And, and some attorneys are also, um, advertising on television and radio. Yeah. I see it everywhere. Corruption claims. In fact, a, um, my understanding, a class action lawsuit just got filed, although I don't know how or why it would be certified, um, against certain insurance companies for loss of business, um, income. And these claims are known as business interruption claims. And for the most part, they're only going to exist in commercial policies. And not every commercial policy um, is going to contain a business interruption. And most of these policies do have specific exclusions, um, which will otherwise exclude pandemics, viruses, contagions, um, pollution, um, civil authority. Um, certainly, we'll be at the Farber Law Firm um, investigating these cases on a case-by-case -case basis and evaluating the insurance policy um, to see if there's something we can um, do to help these folks in these time in this time of need, because um, clearly um, they need some relief and assistance. Right. Uh, the federal government um, has even gone so far as to say that they believe that the insurance company should be paying these risks. Um, in some cases, irrespective of the exclusions that are within the policy. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma in the sense that. The it, it, people have private contracts with insurance companies, and we've got a country where private contracts are not supposed to be um, manipulated or adjusted or rewritten right. by the courts or the government to include um, or exclude uh, certain elements of damage or perils, in this case, the coronavirus. So the question really will be is, is the government um, going to step in to give us some additional um, ammunition to take some of the insurance companies down? Well, that's the part that gets me is I just it's just I find it hard to believe when you see Trump getting up and talking about, yeah, the insurance companies are going to pay. They're going to pay. They have to pay. They have to pay. I mean, I, if I if I flip the rolls and I put it in reverse and I had a solid contract on there that says that I specifically do not pay for a pandemic or, or certain things. I mean, I'm going to probably try to stick to my guns. So I can't really see how the government would do that. However, I heard there's like what, like a governmental action or, or civil authority or something like that, that there, there may be some ways around it or maybe some, 
There, there, and and that's why that's why I'm saying for the most part, every one of these policies have to be looked at with a fine uh, tooth comb um, in the sense that they are all written differently since they're commercial policies. For the most part, they're going to vary widely for the most part. And um, they're going to um, have certain things that are going to be excluded and certain things that will be covered. And the civil authority aspect of things are there are certain aspects of people's businesses being closed that have technically nothing to do with coronavirus in the sense that their property was not contaminated with coronavirus. Their employees didn't get coronavirus. Um, they literally lost their ability to conduct business because the government shut them down. So one of the interplays of whether or not there's going to be coverage or not is, is the loss uh, really coronavirus or is it a civil authority in the sense that they're telling you to shut down because of some contagion that people may um, contract and give to other people. And so that's going to be another thing that's going to have to be looked at very carefully as to whether there's coverage for business interruption insurance. And then there's some um, policies that actually do specifically cover um, pandemics. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, th and there are some other policies which are very uh, robust in the sense that their trade distribution policies. You know, insurance companies are not stupid, as as we all know. They, they make their money by doing actuaries in the sense that they can determine in life insurance or whatever the case may be, um, how many years somebody's going to potentially live based upon their core morbidities, um, the, those issues um, or um, maladies that would otherwise um, uh, cause problems for a person, COPD, uh, and that sort of thing. And then they can actualize what they believe the premium should be based upon someone's health. Well, the same thing goes for them determining how much they're going to have to pay out in a given amount of time based upon losses, how many people have really cast iron drain lines within a particular uh, jurisdiction, what happens if you put a cap or a limit on those um, losses, or how many hurricanes are potentially going to get hit um, within a particular year and what could be our total outlay uh, as a result of that. So the insurance companies have been around for a hundred years plus and they've lived through pandemics and they've lived through um, uh, nuclear threat and things like that. And that's why those things exist within the policy, which we never even contemplated right. before because it wasn't really an issue, right. um, but now it is. I've been advising business owners to just keep track of everything, uh, especially the ones that've got you know decent coverages uh, and they've got the loss of business income. It's just to keep track of all their records, especially for like I'd say like what the last three years at least. So like if if they do decide to file a claim, at least that they've got some they've got something to stand on. They could just sort of compare the numbers. Well, I I would take it even a step further in the sense that it would be my recommendation that you as a public adjuster or me as an attorney, um, whether we can necessarily help the person or not that we actually um, put the claim in because right. realistically there is in most policies, a prompt notice requirement that indicates uh. that you need to tell the insurance company within a reasonable amount of time as to the nature of the loss and that you sustained a loss. Um, and obviously it will give the insurance company um, a leg up in terms of starting to quote, investigate your claim, even though your damages are ongoing. Right now, we don't necessarily know um, what anyone's true ultimate damages are going to be because they haven't reopened anything um, and they may go on for a long period of time. But business interruption is not 
the type of coverage which will provide you with limits as much as, say, the amount of your building. There are, in business interruption policies, certain ways that these um, coverages are um, uh, stated in the sense that they may only provide $100,000 worth of coverage, um, and it may only be distributed in certain ways, like one-fourth a month um, or two-fourths or whatever the case may be over a certain amount of time, which may or may not um, um, get a business back on its feet. But not putting the claim in will potentially cause you detriment because you have the claim regardless, and whether or not the insurance company pays it or not pays it, and although I'm not giving any tax advice, I can certainly tell you that your accountant is going to be able to need that information when um, and if you're filing taxes at the end of the year as to what your losses were. And perhaps there'll be some forgiveness that way from the federal government. So file it, people. That's yeah. what David's saying. That's file what I'm it. saying in, in about a thousand words or less. Don't waste, don't waste any time. Get it in, especially if they got coverage. You know, I got a call. I got a call from a, a local business here in Tampa who found me online. Hey, what do you think I should do about this loss of business income? I said, you got coverage? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, get it in there. Get it in there as soon as possible. I've reviewed actually a couple policies already, um, not for Florida um, insureds, but Texas insureds. Okay. And um, they would cover this loss. Um, oh, that's nice. why I'm saying, you know, contact the agent, get a copy of the policy, um, review it yourself, get it over to me or whatever the case may be, or whatever attorney your folks are working with and say, what do you think here? But again, not putting in the claim, you know, it's kind of like asking a girl out, right? You can ask, you know, a hundred times, you know, maybe you'll get a yes. Uh, but, uh, what did Wayne Gretzky all, say? You ain't never going to go on a date. What did Wayne Gretzky say? You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Exact, that's probably a much better way to say it. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of a joke that a guy used to was complaining. He's, he, he says, God, I'm a, I'm a pious man. I, I go to church and I, I, I work really hard and I hold you in um, the highest regard. And um, I'm begging you to um, uh, help me win the lottery. Um, you know, I, I really need the money. Uh, would you please, um, please, please help me. And so every, every Sunday or Saturday or wherever, you know, religion you, you're subscribing to, um, <laughs> he would go to church, temple, whatever, and, and he'd pray and he'd say, and, and eventually he got angry and he's like, he's like, God, you've forsaken me. You know, you, you, you haven't done what I needed you to do. I thought you would do it. And, and God yells down and, you know, you got to buy a ticket, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so so it's not that great of a joke um no that makes it, sense it, it's it is what it is so you know give it a shot what do you have yeah. to lose yeah that's good advice that's good advice um what else public how can uh since we talked about how what sort of public adjusters need to do to make sure that they don't slip up, provide the POL, follow up on a weekly basis, uh, inform the, get the insurance company, all the documentation as soon as possible. And, um, uh, you know, just do whatever you have to do to, to, to set the claim up, I guess, just to make sure to keep them on, keep them on, on warning. What are some of your nightmare scenarios and what are, give me, give me a nightmare story that you've had that a public adjuster just completely, fucked it all up <laughs> do you have any of those well i mean certainly i've had public adjusters mess things up but you know there there are more warning stories associated with things that can get public adjusters um in trouble that either the public adjuster has um brought upon himself um mm. or has taken um 
the insured um, assistance in potentially perpetrating a fraud. Um, you know, and, and well, I guess I if anything, that, if anything, it's the client that could, it usually screws up the claim. If anything, right? A public adjuster only helps, actually. Well, there there have been some bad public adjusters that have done some really really shady things. You know, the the, the one question that you as a public adjuster should always be wary of um, is if an insured asks you um, what the loss should be, meaning they don't they don't know and they need you to tell them what it is. That can be potentially a red flag that somebody is looking to do something that they shouldn't otherwise do. Tell me what I need to say to make sure that this thing is covered. Um, the facts are what the facts are. Um, and the loss happened the way that the loss happened. And just like I tell all my clients and I would tell all the public adjusters, I can work with any set of facts. What I can't work with are lies or exaggerations. Right. Lies or exaggerations is considered insurance fraud. Um, but some public adjusters have unfortunately either gone to a client's home and purposely caused more damage um, or tried to make damage um, seem more like the cause of loss for which they said it was, um, or invented a loss, uh, a fire, or uh, back in the day, dropping things on the ground and breaking floors. Oh, the old drop object claim. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then they get the insured to participate in this fraud. Um, and when that sort of thing happens, people go to jail. Um, and, and, and obviously that is part of the reason why the insurance company is always of the opinion that perhaps someone is committing fraud as it relates to an insurance claim. And they're not so willing in some respects to break out their checkbook. Um, but from my perspective, you know, a, a public adjuster, most of the public adjusters that I've worked with, um, they're good, honorable people who are trying to do the right thing. Um, and they haven't really done anything that's been tremendously problematic. Um, in my um, 20 years of uh, representing folks. Yeah, that's what I tell. I get a question like that too by public adjusters. Like, oh, I just don't want to screw it up. I don't want to screw it up. And I'm like, you can't. I mean, you really can't screw it up. Um, well, you're gone again. No, I'll be back in a second. I tell well, them, I said, you can't really screw it up. I mean, if you don't provide the POL, you're screwing it up. Um, if you just let the claim just it forgets itself and you don't follow up with the insurance company. It just drags on, you know, that's, that's not good either. Uh, but then that looks bad on the insurance company's part too. I just tell them, I'm like, there's no reason to invent anything. There's no reason to do anything like that or any kind of fraud, because at the end of the day, there's claims out there. I mean, you know, as much as I do, there's claims all over the place, man, especially Miami, especially Florida, especially all over the country, which it's, it's fun to see now when I'm doing all the social media stuff that they're, uh, there's public adjusters all over, man, all over the country, from Florida to Texas to uh, to Wyoming, Wisconsin, and all these little tiny little towns where I'm just like, all right, cool. I mean, the people have never heard of what public adjusters are, uh, but yeah, there's it's it seems to me like it's a growing industry. Well, you guys have a, have a lot of um, great aspects to your job. You've always uh, told me that. You're just like, God, sometimes I just wish. I wish I was just a public adjuster. Well, we have a lot more rules in terms of what we can say or what we can do or how we can get business. You have less rules. Um, but you also have the ability, if you wanted to be, a storm chaser. Meaning you hear about a particular locale that just got smashed with hail um, or a tornado or flood or hurricane, whatever the case oh, may be. That hurricane storm chasing, man, that, that was, I, I, that rubbed me the wrong way. When I went to, uh, when I went to the panhandle for Michael, I mean, all I ended up doing was help people put tarps up, help people put tarps up. I help people take stuff out of their house. And I didn't even, 
I mean, if it came up a conversation, I told them what I did for a living and really was the reason why I was there. But when you go to one of these places that have just been leveled by one of these bad storms, it's nasty. I was talking to somebody the other day, something similar where he's got that whole, he's got like the, for the fires, he's got like the 911 emergency calls and all that stuff. And he's gone to a couple of these and there's all these other public adjusters out there. And there's all these other there's all these other water mitigation companies out there. And he calls me and he's just like, Hey, what do you, what's like, what should I do in this situation? How can I separate myself from the rest? I told him, I said, get a good referral <laughs> instead of just being out there competing against all these other guys. Because I told him, I said, frankly, I told him about hurricane Michael. I said, I don't even, I couldn't even see myself doing that because, and this is not, I, I don't want to knock any public adjuster that does it. It's just that I just feel so terrible. I mean, especially even after a fire, they've lost their house and you're out there asking them to sign a contract. You know, it could be a little, it's just a dicey situation. I feel bad for when these people well, go through that. Vince, you're one of the good guys. I mean, and, and we have to remember that as public adjusters and attorneys in this area, um, and I also do personal injury too, um, we are, we are, Part of a very noble and honorable profession that can help um, a lot of people um, and give a voice to people because without us, the insurance companies would otherwise run over people and tremendously take advantage of them. People complain about lawyers um, all the time, but they're, we're the first people people run to when a problem arises because they know that we're going to fix it for them. Um, and people forget about that because there's a lot of misinformation out there saying, Personal injury attorney, ambulance chaser. Well, sure, that's one of them. But, <laughs> but then the other one is is that you know these AOBs and these attorneys and these public adjusters, they're the reasons why your insurance oh. rates are so high because oh. you know they're the ones one. who are 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 causing so much problems. And really, you have to ask yourself a question. It, just like in the case where they say ambulance chasers or whatever the case may be. Nobody's paying monies on things that they don't generally owe. So if you're, as an insurance company, having to pay more out, whether it be an attorney's fees or indemnity or whatever the case may be, it's that's because that's what's owed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. You have an ability to fight and you have an ability to win. And don't tell me that you don't have the resources in which to do so. You're we were talking screwing people on some level. And for your rates to go up, you know, we, you look at it from this perspective is that rates go up in proportion to um, claims uh, because insurance companies are paying out more. But insurance companies are playing out more because of the, the nature of the loss that they insure. If they don't like the nature of the loss that they insure, then don't insure the property to begin with. You know, there's so many options to them. Um, and people, I'm sure your new public adjusters know, but people's rates for their insurance policies do not go up because of the claims that they're putting in. Uh, it, that's why we have insurance. They go up because those rate in, uh, increases are approved by the department. And when that sort of thing happens, we all get screwed. But guess who's still making record profits? They are. Um, what's fraud, right? Because we were just talking about fraud. Is fraud, uh, you know, inventing a claim, obviously. But I also look at, I got a claim right now where they just paid out, I don't know, let's just say $10,000. And in the email, he's like, I'm willing to pay you an additional $6,000 in exchange for a release. And I'm like, wait, motherfucker. Like, why did you just pay that in the beginning? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's fraud? Uh, uh, what, what, you know, inventing a claim or is it actually paying $10,000 on a loss that's actually worth $20,000? 
You know, it's well, like, come on, I, man. I think it's far worse than that, to be honest with you, because first of all, releases really shouldn't be um, provided to public adjusters. And then public you don't like those providing. things. Well, it's bad faith for a insurance company to give a release that extinguishes the entirety of the claim. Um, we have a case like that now. And um, that they're not allowed to do that because an insurance policy is a living, breathing document in the sense that just because you have a claim um, doesn't foreclose the claim simply because the insurance company pays you money. You're allowed to, in a normal situation, go back to them and say, I had um, uh, ALE and it was incur it incurred and here's another ten or $20,000. You need to pay me these ALEs. But if you're signing a release, you're potentially extinguishing that claim and that's a major problem, both for you as the public adjuster and the insured who didn't agree to otherwise close out their claim simply because the insurance company is doing what it's required to do under the policy, which is to pay a damn loss. Right. You know, it, it, that's their job. They're not in a situation where they're not required to pay. So why should they, where in the policy does it say that they're as part of payment that you're supposed to sign a release? Doesn't say that anywhere in there. Sure. But they love it when you do. They love it when you do, because then they of know they it's over. I don't know, and that's and those are cer certain situations where you should be consulting with an attorney. Sure, sure. I had a guy the other day who he comes in, seems nice in the beginning, and he's taking his measurements, and he's like, you know, I don't understand why any client would even hire a public adjuster when the claim gets paid fine. And I'm like, dude. Why would we even exist if you guys actually paid the way you're supposed to pay? I said, number one. And what I like to tell them is that I, I like you, I work for the other side. I work for State Farm for a year and a half. And when you're on, I don't know if you felt like that, but I'm sure when, when you were on the other side, you defend your side. You see it from a, from a, from like a, you know, from like a, what is it, you know, horse blinders. blinders. Right. Yeah. So you just think, yeah, what you're doing is right. And you're defending and this and that, and you're paying up to the way it's supposed to pay. But then when you go and you take a look at the other side of the fence, you're like, whoa, okay, look what's happening here. I didn't notice this, but this is like a real thing. For sure. Look, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid when I was a defense yep. lawyer. So did I. And, and, and you had to, you know, believe in your side and, there were a lot of times where I was like, public adjusters, man, they must all be frauds. I mean, how could they have an estimate right. that's 10 times my my adjuster's estimate? How is that even possible? Right. And then we'd start going to appraisal and it'd come back like not 10 times, but maybe five or six times. And I'd be like, how the hell is that even possible? I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because, you know, you want to believe on some level that if an insurance company is making a, quote, mistake, that the, the mistake is going to be 10%, 20%. I mean, I've turned cases into thousands of percent. I'm not a mathematician to be able to tell you how much I've turned thousands denied or underpaid into how much more money afterwards. How is that a mistake? And they did so voluntarily. And sometimes it's even in a short amount of time after I file a lawsuit, which really makes you wonder, like you said, if you're willing to pay me 10 and now you're willing to pay me another six, but with a what release, the you're almost paying me double on some level, you know, a third. Or a you were double. trying to what? commit fraud in a way. Yeah. I mean, I know you don't mean I like that word, but you were trying to screw us over somehow, some way. What is it they say? They say like 80% of the claims never go, uh, they never go contested. The other one is the, um, the other one is a, a de depreciation. Like 95% of claims never even get the depreciation released after the, the person finishes the work. I mean, it's just crazy. Because there's a lack of education. And, and, and that's why I'm so proud of what you're doing. Now. That's why I started this thing. 
you know, and, and that's, and that's impressive. I mean, like people need to know and, and, and they need to make sure to hold their insurance company accountable, however they do it, whether they do it through us or whether they do it through, uh, themselves or, or whatever the case may be. But the one thing that needs to stop happening is people not being treated fairly for a product that they bought, that they anticipated was going to be there for them in their time of need. Enough's enough. Well, if you ask me, it starts with the agent. It, that's another problem. Jesus. I mean, I can't. When I walk into these houses and these people have just had two inches of water in their house and I look at their policy and I'm like, you got no water damage coverage. They're like, what? Or you've got $10,000 limit. You've got about a hundred thousand dollar loss here, but they're not going to pay you more than 10. And I'm just like, why in the hell are these goddamn agents selling these? And that's why I started the channel. Wasn't for public adjusters. This turned into a public adjuster thing, but I started it literally because I got sick and tired of running into these goddamn claims <laughs> with freaking $10,000 water damage limits or contractor right to repair or just complete exclusions on water damage when 95% of our claims, David, are water damage claims. You know, know. and it's like it's the, they know it, what they're, they're doing. The three big ones are, are fire, hurricane, and water. Um, if you're going to get hit, everything else is going to be relatively small. But if you're going to get hit with one of those three, it's generally going to be pretty large. And it's crazy to have a limits of insurance of, say, That's 100, crazy. 200, 300, 500, whatever the case may be, and then have a water loss and have your beautiful floors and kitchen and everything destroyed and only have $10,000 of coverage. Crazy. Um, and, and, the and the Department of Insurance has apparently allowed them to get away with it in some respects. But I file on these cases. Um daily, weekly, um, to argue various different theories in the law um, to try and overcome these 10,000. Yeah, but they're not easy. They're not Nothing, easy. Nothing's easy in this world, but certainly not that because um, they're doing their very best to make sure um, that people aren't able to recover. In fact, I had, an, I had a discussion today with um, a lawyer on the other side where they had denied the loss and they they said that it's not covered because they have a water damage exclusion. I was like, okay, let me take a look at the water damage exclusion. I looked at it pretty carefully. I'm like, nah, I'm like this, this water damage exclusion does not, does not exclude this loss. And, um, here's my lawsuit. And I filed two separate lawsuits cause they had two separate losses and the insurance company, even though they denied the claim, come out with an offer of $20,000 on each and I'm like, that's after I just filed the lawsuit and, but, but it's still not covered according to them. And I said, really? I said, well, um, why don't we take a look at your exclusion? And, you know, there's this certain thing, you know, it's called grammar and punctuation. <laughs> I'm like, had you had done this, that, and the other thing, it might've been excluded, but because you didn't guess what, buddy, your exclusion doesn't apply. And all of a sudden, ding, 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 light goes off in his head. And I say, I say to them. Think about it this way. I may have caught you with your pants down, um, but, you know, you need to do what's right and pay my client what they're owed, period. You know, I'm not looking to make a mountain out of a molehill here, um, but this is why it's so important as we started off this conversation with making sure you get the policy, making sure that you review the policy. And if you have any questions about the policy, um, getting an attorney involved to further analyze it to help you to determine whether or not the loss is covered or not, or whether that $10,000 cap or that water damage exclusion can be worked around. There are sometimes possibilities uh, to do so. Yeah, I will say for all public adjusters listening is to try to have a good 
relationship with an attorney that you could call and you could ask them because at the end of the day, although I know we are policy experts, you guys just read so fast. <laughs> you guys are capable of reading fast. And I think it's also good for attorneys to know, don't be that attorney that is just hard to get a hold of. You know what I mean? Just don't be that, you know, the, I, I just, uh, I never liked that when I first started, you know, when I met you, you know, thankfully it's, it's, you're like I said, very accessible. And I think all attorneys should take after you in regards to, especially with their public adjusters, because I mean, let's face it, it's, it's good for you to have a good relationship with public adjusters in your industry. So it certainly is, but you know, it, it's interesting because I, I learned this as well. I, I, I graduated from the university of Florida with, um, a degree in well, I went to UM too. So, <laughs> um, so I, it, you know, I, I graduated with a degree in insurance and finance, and um, I got my uh, license to be able to sell insurance. And my father was an insurance agent for thirty something years. So every time, even I had a question as an attorney, I'd say, "Dad, what, what do you think about this sort of issue?" And he goes, "Oh, definitely, absolutely not covered." And I'd be like, "Where do you come up with that?" I'm like, "Why yeah. do you say that?" He's like, "Well, that's what they." taught us in school i'll even show you in the books because who do you think is teaching them about what's covered or not covered within an insurance policy sure um, but rather the insurance companies that are selling the products that are being sold to their customers but exactly. what my father used to say is is that listen my job as the insurance agent whether it's good on my record or not is to make sure my client gets paid i don't want to be sitting there in a situation where um I sold them a product and then they're not getting paid. So I want you to find these potential, you know, loopholes or ambiguous aspects of policies, because I want to make sure that these people are getting what they pay for, which is insurance to cover them in their time of need. And so when you talk to some of these adjusters who are not adjusters, agents, they're actually incentivized by their loss ratio meaning they don't want people to put in claims. That's a problem for them. The amount you of said claims, it, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. Well, the amount of claims that, that, that get filed under their whatever, some of them get bonuses from insurance companies to go on special trips. You know, um, there's all sorts of interesting things that work here that are beyond my pay grade. Um, yeah. I am familiar with, with some of them. And a lot of what I say is based upon my, opinion and just being out in the field in a very for a very long time um but you know if you start peeling back the layers you never know what you're gonna find again i guess we're biased we're on our side we see what we see and it's disgusting you know um, sometimes like i said not all insurance companies are bad and some of them do the right thing and they 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 do respond to their insurance company they've, their created, insurance a they've but, created a monster but you know for the most part um Everything that you and I have seen, uh, for the most part, required our involvement. You know, how many cases have you walked? I mean, I've walked away from a few saying, listen, you're premature. You know, listen, right at this point in time, you're, you got to give your insurance company a little more time to do what they need to do. If they do not do the right thing, you can come back and talk to me. But I'm not going to take your money um, uh, or start trying to assist you with your insurance companies early on simply to... Um, um, you know, cause more problems for you than you think, because once you get a lawyer involved sometimes right. and you send a letter in pre-suit and they lawyer up back. Um, and with all these pre-suit compliance issues, you asked me a question before, what's a nightmare about a, about a public adjuster that can go wrong for a public adjuster and for their client, not complying with post-loss obligations. Mm, it's very yes. simple. You need to take a look at that letter that's written by the insurance company. It's going to have, 
I want you to provide numbers one through 10, 15, whatever the case may be. You need right. to respond as quickly as possible because then it gets back to, I've given you everything. I've done everything. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? As right. it relates to number one, attach. Number two. That's what I do. Number right. three, um, not in my client's possession, might be right. in possession of someone who my client has no custody or control over to be able to produce whatever. Um, doesn't exist, doesn't exist. You want a recorded statement? Please contact me for times and dates and available. I'll make my client available on the next five, whatever. So at the end of the day, one of the arguments once I file a lawsuit is um, you didn't comply with your post loss obligations because you didn't allow the insurance company to do that recorded statement that they asked for four months ago, but never bothered to schedule. Or you never produced a document that we requested that they never followed up on, but then they offered you more money and then you took some of that money. And then later on, when you asked for more, now it's like, ah, you didn't give us the document. Well, right. why did you give me more money before if the document was really important? <laughs> All right, hold on. Uh, technological difficulties again. Let's close this. Absolutely. Final, final statement. Final statement. Go for it. All I can say is, Vince, um, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this um, and um, be part of your journey uh, to improve public adjusters, uh, the practice of public adjusting, and otherwise um, getting great results for your clients. I'm honored to know you um, as a professional and as a friend. Uh, I look forward to many um, years uh, to come of friendship and, and uh, business relations. And um, for any of your public adjusters out there, uh, should they need or um, want to contact me, they're certainly welcome to do so. Uh, again, my name is David Farber, um, and I can be reached at 305-774-0134. Or dfarber at dfarberlaw.com. Thanks, Vince. All right. So, yeah, so we're closing this off as well. David, thank you very much for joining us on the Claims Game podcast. The first one, too, the first ever one that we've ever done. So, that was pretty exciting. Uh, we've talked about some really good stuff. Um, and I think it went very well. So, we'll go on to the next one. We'll be doing another one in one month, interviewing someone else in the industry. And I'm sure that's going to go well as well. So, keep following all our stuff. Check out the new site, commercialclaimsadvocate.com, where you could basically watch everything. You could rewatch this uh, podcast and listen to this podcast. And you could, uh, hold on, give me a second. Uh, uh, you could rewatch this podcast and you could. Um, uh, do everything online, rewatch the podcast, look at the videos, look at the new blog that we've got and just get in touch with me as well. So check it out. Commercialclaimsadvocate.com. Looking forward to doing this again, David, again, thank you so much for joining us and we will talk to you later.